Welcome to the Next Level Soul podcast, where we ask the big questions about life. Why are we here? Is this all there is? What is my soul's mission? We attempt to answer those questions and more by bringing you raw and inspiring conversations with some of the most fascinating and thought-provoking guests on the planet today. I am your host, Alex Ferrari. I have always wanted to help the audience take their soul to the next level, so I've partnered with Mind Valley and other amazing free courses on spirituality, mind, body, soul, longevity, wealth, and so much more. All you need to do is go to nextlevelsoul.com forward slash free. Now today, guys, we have a very special episode. So many of you have reached out to me wanting to learn more about my story and where I came from and why I do the work that I do. And I wanted to kind of give you guys an origin story in this episode. I did a keynote speech at uh, the Chinese theater in Hollywood years ago, talking about my experiences that are in my book, Shooting for the Mob, where I almost made a $20 million movie for the mafia. And I think this story really encapsulates my origins of wanting to help other people and avoid the pain and suffering that I went through. Now, It's not just for artists and filmmakers. This story, I believe everyone can take a little bit out of. So first, you're going to listen to the keynote speech, and then I'm going to give you a free preview of my audiobook of Shooting for the Mob, and you'll get four free chapters to listen to. So sit back, relax, and let's dive in. Today, I wanted to talk to you about following your dream. That dream that is in your belly, that dream that doesn't let you sleep at night, that doesn't let you breathe, that you fight so much to get. A lot of times it's a filmmaking dream, a lot of times it's a screenwriting dream. But that dream, I want you to ask yourself, what are you willing to do for that dream? Are you willing to sell your soul to the devil to make that dream come true? Because that's exactly what I did. Now, before I tell that story, I want to tell you about a little bit of how I got there and why, when the devil showed up, I signed on the dotted line. I was raised, or I came up in the late 80s, early 90s, so when high school and film school came up. And during that time, it was a glorious time because it was kind of the birth of independent film back then. That's when all these amazing directors were coming out, and it seemed like every single week, there was a new director, a new mythical story that showed up. So we had Spike Lee with She's Gotta Have It, and uh, John Singleton, Boys in the Hood, Richard Linkletter, uh, Slacker, uh, Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs, Kevin Smith with Clerks, and of course, the most mythical of all these stories, Robert Rodriguez, El Mariachi. That story for my generation, and for many generations since, is literally mythical a young Latino filmmaker goes out and makes a $7,000 action movie in 1990. Like today, that's doable and people do it all the time. But back then it was unheard of. The technology wasn't available to do it. And to have the audacity to make a feature film about that $7,000, let alone an action movie, was insane. And this story goes that he happened to meet one of the biggest directing agents in Hollywood at ICM at the time. Then he gets a 
signs a deal with Columbia Pictures and goes on to make Desperado and Sin City and Once Upon a Time in Mexico and Spy Kids and, and the rest is history. Now that whole phenomenon, that time in, in filmmaking, I call that, there's a, 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 a word that I came up with, which is basically the lottery ticket mentality. You know, filmmakers got into this, I have to make one movie. And that one movie is going to get me into Sundance. And that Sundance movie is going to, I'm going to win Sundance. And then someone will come down from Mount Hollywood and anoint you. You shall direct. And that was the mentality that not only did I buy into it, it was burned into my brain. And I was constantly looking for that lottery ticket. Everything I did was about that lottery ticket, that short way, that quick way. Not the, I got to bust my balls for 20 years or 15 years or 10 years and pay my dues. No, no, no. That one movie is going to do it. That lottery ticket is going to do it for me. So when the devil showed up for me, my devil was named Jimmy. and He was a gangster. Not a fake gangster, but an actual real mafia gangster who spent time in the mafia, spent time in jail for doing God knows what. And he showed up and offered me a $20 million movie to direct his life story in a feature film. And a friend of ours connected us, and I use the term friends very, very loosely. And I was very green. I was 26 years old. And I was extremely, extremely green at that time. I was not worldly at all. I had directed a few music videos and commercials, and I had talent, and I had some experience. And I could have done a, a great job directing a feature, I, I felt, even at that young age. But when he offered it to me, I, I said to myself, is, is this my shot? Is this my lottery ticket? So what happens is when you fall into this wanting of your dream so much, and just you'll do anything for that dream, it opens yourself up to be taken advantage of by someone who's going to tell you exactly what you want to hear. So Jimmy found me, and he's like, okay, this kid has talent. I think I can use him. I can do some stuff. And I signed on the dotted line. I said, sure, this has to be my shot. Like, how else is this has to be it? So then he turns to me and goes, all right, kid, I need you to shoot a trailer. This is my bad Jimmy impression, so please bear with me. I got you to shoot a trailer because I got to prove to the bonding company that you can actually direct the film. And I'm like, of course, what do we need to do? He's like, I need you to shoot like 10 minutes of my script. Here, read the script, by the way. So I read the script, and it was an amazing story. It was a really good story. The script needed work. And, and he goes, can you, uh, can you script doctor it? Can you rewrite it? And I said, of course I can. I've never written a script before. I said, sure, of course I can rewrite a script. You know, how hard could it be? <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's just words. So I took some scenes out of the movie, and out of the script, and I put together 10 minutes that we're going to go shoot. And he's like, you need to pay for it because this is your shot. I'm giving you the shot. I'm giving you the opportunity. So there's that word again, your shot. So I'm saying to myself, well, this is my shot. This is my shot. So I'm going to bust out my credit card. And I'm going to put $10,000 on it. Now, it worked for Kevin Smith. It worked for Robert Townsend and Hollywood Shuffle. Why couldn't it work for me? So I put that $10,000 down. By the way, I was broke. I was not doing well at the time, you know, but I was like, this is my shot, gotta go. So we went and shot this amazing trailer. It was 
just brilliant. It was, I, I really loved it. We shot it on 35 millimeter, because that's all we had back then. I flew in this amazing actor from LA. He was a real Hollywood actor. It was the actual first time I'd ever worked with a real actor. It was amazing. It was wonderful. And we shot all this stuff, and we had a great time. We shot the whole thing in about four days. I edited it and put it all together, and I was so proud. And Jimmy loved it. Jimmy was like, oh, my God, kid, you got the good. I knew you were the right guy. I knew you were the right guy. And we're going to have this uh, screening. We're going to have the premiere. Now, when I tell you where the premiere is, you won't believe it. Of course, it's well, maybe you will believe it. My premiere was going to be at an Italian restaurant. Straight out of Goodfellas. I'm not, I'm not even joking. It's like literally a scene out of Goodfellas. And we were going to like take the back room, put a big tube TV, because that's what was around. And we were going to put in, uh, I think it was a VHS at the time. There was no DVDs yet burning. So I was going to put the VHS in. We're going to watch it. Now, before all that, I'm finishing, putting the finishing touches up on the, on the trailer. And I, I decided to call Jimmy. I'm like, Jimmy, I'm doing the credits. So... Uh, I'm just letting you know what the final credits are going to be. I'm going to be the director, obviously, and then I'm going to put you and me as a producer since I produced it and I paid for it and I actually actually physically produced it. And Jimmy's like, that's not going to work, kid. I'm the only producer on this. And, of course, my young ego got a little flustered. And I said, Jimmy, I'm sorry, but that's just not going to fly. I'm the and all of a sudden, the real Jimmy showed up, and he started railing into me on that phone call, threatening me. I'm going to throw you in a ditch. Do you know who the hell I am? I don't care. This is my movie. Who do you think you are? All this, and I hang up on him because at this point, I'm still good. I think I could still walk away at this point. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. Mind you, that wonderful actor from L.A. overheard all this. And he got scared to death because he was playing Jimmy in the trailer. So he had spent time with Jimmy, you know, trying to get that whole, you know, get into the character and all that stuff. He said, are you okay? I'm like, I can't believe this. You know, I'm pissed off and this stuff. I'm still ignorant to the situation. I'm still, it's all about me. It's about my ego. Now, all of a sudden, that friend that connected us calls me and goes, what have you done? He goes, are you kidding me? I'm like, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm not going to go tonight. He goes, what do you mean you're not going to go tonight? He invited all his buddies. You know those extras that were on the set when you were shooting the trailer with real guns in their holsters while we were shooting? Remember those guys that you kind of ignored because you were too busy directing? They're all going to be there. And what do you think is going to happen if Jimmy shows up and his director's not there? And the movie doesn't show up. What do you think is going to happen? You think you're going to walk away from this? It's too late to walk away from this. And it all of a sudden dawned on me. I'm like, oh, crap. I'm, I'm in. It's Donnie Brasco. I'm in. I'm in. I can't, I can't get out. And there was a moment right there that I had the choice. I had the choice to leave the situation. And if there was a moment, that was it. Or I'm going to go down this road. The universe said, here it is, your choice. You want to spend the next year going down this road with this guy? Or you can walk away from your dream, your shot. What are you going to do? I stayed. 
And I stayed because I was afraid and because it was my shot. It was my lottery ticket. So I show up to the, the restaurant that night. And the second I see it, Jimmy, we lock eyes. And I could feel the voice inside of his head go, I got this guy. He's mine now. And I was. And from that moment on, for the next year, we tried to make this movie. We moved into our production offices, which was a 1960s dilapidated racetrack. Straight out of Brasco. I'm not even joking. I mean, I can't even explain to you. Red carpet. You could smell the cancer coming off the walls. The asbestos was everywhere. These were our production offices. Our production meetings were about cocktail tables put together. That was our production meeting. I, I move in with Jimmy and we start trying to make this movie. We're sending reels out to everybody, all this kind of stuff. And the story of Jimmy and me trying to make a movie for the mob by itself is extremely entertaining and extremely, it would be fantastic. But that wasn't the only part about it. The funny thing is that Hollywood actually took him seriously. And I was flown out multiple times to LA and I met billion dollar producers. I met the biggest movie stars in the world. I'm meeting the heads of the biggest agencies in the world. I'm at the Chateau Maman having tea with one of the biggest actors you know. If I say his name, you would know who he is. While I'm surrounded by other actors, like, again, this is my shot. It has to be my shot. I'm at the Ivy. I'm at Spago's with meetings with producers. I'm meeting a billion dollar producer whose movie had just done godzillions amounts of money and I'm in his penthouse in the Hollywood Hills where the walls are made of glass. So you could just see all of the valley and everything it was just stunning. And I'm there sitting there in his screening room like the end sequence of, of uh, True Romance, literally watching my trailer. This has to be my, my shot, right? Why would the universe do this if it wasn't? I even got to meet Batman. I actually got to meet Batman. I was flown to an undisclosed location where I landed and I went to Batman's house. I'm not kidding you. One of the actors who played Batman. And I'm driving to his house and we get to the mansion. And it is a mansion. And I'm like, it's Wayne Manor. It's just Wayne Manor. Let's just call it what it is. It's Wayne Manor. All right. And then all of a sudden, his, his assistant, his servant, his butler, what, it's, well, it's Alfred. It's Alfred. Alfred shows up. He goes, Mr. Wayne, we'll see you in a minute. He's in the other wing. This is, I'm not joking. I'm like, sure, I'm fine. Why not? So we walk in, private chef making fresh omelets. He's like, what would you like, sir? I'm like, I don't know. Egg whites with some tomatoes? I'm like loving it. I'm like, it's, this is insane. This has to be, again, my shot, right? So I'm sitting there and I'm waiting while I'm looking at his awards and his you know, movie posters of things he's done and all this kind of stuff, right? And all of a sudden, I see Batman walking towards me from the other side of the house. And I go, oh my God, there's Batman. And he's wearing a cardigan. Like, why is Batman wearing a cardigan? It was surreal. It was surreal. And he comes up to me and we start talking. I'm like, oh my God, dude, like we played Batman and these movies you were in. And I love this movie that you almost won an Oscar for. And this is like, oh man, thank you. We're sitting there for three hours talking 
while Jimmy's basically twiddling his thumbs because Jimmy, Jimmy can't talk movies. He's a gangster. So we're talking movies, and then all of a sudden Batman turns to me and goes, hey, dude, do you want to, like, sleep over? Like, to talk about the movie because I'm going to be in your movie. And I'm like, you're going to be in my movie? He goes, yeah, yeah, yeah you're in. I want to I wanna work with you, and I want to be in your movie. Again, this has to be my shot. And I'm like, I would love to sleep over Batman's house. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, Jimmy goes, nah, kid, nah, kid, we got to get back. We got to keep working on the pre-production. And I, I literally almost turned to him. I'm like, dude, when Batman asks you to sleep over, you sleep over. It wasn't to be. I was uh, flown out, flown back out to our racetrack. And I have to I have to I have to I have to share one other story with you because I want you to understand who Jimmy was. Jimmy not only threatened me um, verbally on a daily basis. It was like going to work with Joe Pesci from Goodfellas. You had no idea who you were going to get. It could be the coolest, funniest stories, like amazing guy, or you can get. Am I a clown to you? Do I amuse you? Psychotic, bipolar, insane. So he would threaten me on a daily basis. He would, I'm going to throw you in a ditch. I remember one day while I was in a production meeting, he grabbed my shoulder and squeezed so tight right here and said, because I had a really good production meeting and my, my crew and everything were really happy. And they said, he said, don't forget who's the captain of this ship. I can bust you over the head with a shovel and throw you in a ditch somewhere, which is fantastic motivation to direct a film. It's wonderful. It just gets your blood flowing. During that time of trying to make this movie, I was introduced to amazing crew people and had people flown in from L.A. that I worked with. And there was two crew members specifically that I have to mention because in the darkest time of my life, there was two crew members, that both from L.A. One was named Frank, who was a first AD who had worked with David Fincher and Martin Scorsese and all this stuff, and he became a mentor to, her, to me, showing me how to... You know, it was a film school. This whole process was a very rough film school, but a film school nevertheless. And the second guy was my, my cinematographer. We would like to call him Boris. Now, Boris was, Boris was like a light. He was a shining light in the darkest time of my life. He was there to protect me. He was there to educate me. He was from Eastern Europe. So he, I'd never met anyone from Europe because I'm like, closed little box boy and completely green of the world you know and and it was him that kind of helped me him and frank who helped me through this but still i was they could see the the, the pressure i was under the pounding i was under and it was it was insane and i i wanted to tell you that because of boris is why i'm here talking about this story because boris was the one who kept pounding me for 18 years Alex, you have to tell this story. Alex, you have to share this. You have to write the screenplay. His exact words was always, you have to write the screenplay. And I'm like, I'm not writing the screenplay. And it took me a long time. Where till finally, a year and a half ago or so, I'm driving with my family to Target. And Boris calls me out of the blue. He goes, are you near a radio? And I said, yeah, I'm here. Turn on this channel. And when I turned it on, Guess who was on? Jimmy. And all of a sudden, I was that 26-year-old kid again. It all just came crashing down on me. 
I was 43, 40, I think, 43 at the time. Grown man with a family. And I was just there again. It's like, oh my God. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. And I, I told my wife, I'm like, go into Target. I need, I, need to, I need to do this. I need to listen to this guy. And she knew some things about it. She doesn't know the whole story. Nobody knows the whole story. Nobody knows the whole story of what happened. And I'm sitting there listening to him spew again stuff. And he's talking about trying to make movies and how the world screwed him over and all this kind of craziness. So the interview ends, and I call up Boris. I go, Boris, I can't believe he's still doing this. And he goes, you have to write the screenplay. It's time. And I'm like... I'm not writing the screenplay. I'm not going to go chase money. It's a movie about a f- filmmaker trying to make a movie with the mob. It's a period piece because this happened all like in the early 2000s. Like who's going to give me the three to five million dollars that I'm going to probably need to make this? Because it's definitely not a $3,000 movie. This is going to be a little bit bigger. And he goes, well, you could write a book. And I'm like, damn it. He's right. I can write the book. And that's what I did. It was the toughest thing I ever had to do because I had to go back to the darkest time of my life and live there for a year while I was writing this thing. I would cry while I was writing some scenes because I, I was feeling it all again. It all came rushing back to me. I would skip chapters as I was writing because I knew where I would have to go emotionally to get to that place. And when I was done with it, the second the first draft was done, a weight had lifted off my shoulders. But the scary part about that, it was a weight that I didn't know I was carrying. It's not like I sat there for 10 years going, oh, Jimmy did this to me, Jimmy did that. I didn't do that. I hadn't thought about him in a decade. I really hadn't. But I realized something after the book was released and I had this cathartic experience that I, I went back and analyzed my life a little bit. And what I realized was that traumatic experience in my life had literally changed the trajectory of my entire life and career. Because every decision I made on a subconscious level, my subconscious mind was trying to protect me because it did not want to go back to that. It associated making a feature film with extreme pain on a subconscious level. On a conscious level, I'm Tarantino, let's do this. But subconsciously, I was surrounding myself with people that would never get it done. I would throw obstacles in front of myself. I sabotaged myself. And I asked myself, my God, if I am going through this, I can only imagine how many of my fellow filmmakers have done this that they don't even know that they're doing. Whether it's fear of, fear of f- failure, fear of success. Mommy told me I, didn't, I wasn't good enough. You're dumb. All of that stuff. And I finally realized that I needed to get this story out there. I wanted to get it out there to help people, to let them know that there's a choice, that you have a choice when you're in a bad situation. You should never sell your soul for the mere opportunity to get your dream to come true. It wasn't a guaranteed dream. It was the opportunity to possibly get the dream. You shouldn't compromise yourself. You shouldn't take abuse. How many people right now as we're sitting here have been taking abuse in this town, in Hollywood, right now from their boss, their you know, directors, their people in power, 
beating down the people below them. And they put up with it. Why? That mere chance to get to the next level, to get that one promotion, to get that one thing, to get that lottery ticket. That lottery ticket that's going to take me to the next level. And I, I really wanted to get this story out there for that reason, that reason only. And I'm going to leave you with this quote. I'm going to leave you with two quotes. One of my favorite quotes is by Robin Schwoma, who says, Most people die at 20, but are buried at 90. And when I heard that quote, it was like a gut punch. Because mo a lot of our friends, a lot of people we know, a lot of filmmakers will take that job to make the money, but won't do what they're, they're not doing what they're meant to do. They're not there to follow your dream. I am a proponent of following your dream. Because you're all here for a reason. Everybody in the world is here for a specific reason. You have a talent, you have a gift to share with the world. What that is, is up to you. It doesn't have to be grandiose. It could be something simple. But you need to find it because when you find it, then you become happy. And you're not that bitter, angry filmmaker that we all know. And I always tell people, we all know angry, bitter filmmakers, right? And if you don't know angry, bitter filmmakers, you are the bitter, angry filmmakers. <laughs> so I always tell people, please follow your dreams, but be very careful about the devils that are waiting around the corner to take advantage of you on your dream. And I hope this story helps you on your journey through it. And I'll leave you with one quote by the late and great Joseph Campbell, who said, the treasure that you seek is in the cave that you're afraid to walk into. Please walk into that cave every single time the opportunity comes to you because you're only here for a short amount of time. Follow your dreams. Be safe about it. But always, always go for it. Thank you, guys. Now, if you're still interested in listening to a little bit deeper about my origin story, please sit back and enjoy these next four free chapters of my audiobook, Shooting for the Mob. And at the end of it, I will tell you how you can get a free copy on Audible. Enjoy. Truth is stranger than fiction. No phrase better captures the story that you're about to read, which, by the way, is based on true events. As unbelievable as it may sound, it has taken me 17 years to find the courage to go back to the darkest time in my life and write this book. Many of us in the film industry chase our dreams relentlessly. We take chances that we shouldn't, get into situations that are sometimes reckless, and let ourselves be taken advantage of just for the chance of making our dreams come true. Whether that dream be writing, directing, or any art form, we all, at one point or another, allow our ego to lead our decision-making. You do need to have a dash of crazy in you to follow your dream. And that's what it takes. Hustle, determination, and patience. All the greats who made it happen for themselves were crazy. But the one thing that you can't do is abandon yourself, your morals, or your common sense in the pursuit of that dream. You cannot allow your ego to take control of the steering wheel. For almost a year of my life, I was trapped in a situation I couldn't escape. I feared for my life almost on a daily basis. I had no idea whether Jimmy, the egomaniacal and bipolar gangster who hired me to direct his life story, would one day clock me over the head and throw me in a ditch somewhere. The amount of stress and pressure 
that I was under was incalculable. Yet, I did not leave. Because, like any good con man, Jimmy was a master of dangling the golden carrot. And dangle that carrot he did. I was flown to Hollywood many times to meet some of the biggest movie stars on the planet, as well as billion-dollar producers and even the heads of Hollywood's biggest studios and talent agencies. I even got the chance to meet Batman. Yes, that Batman. You have to remember that I was a 26-year-old kid as green as they came. I had no idea how to handle anything that was happening to me. Every time I would meet a movie star or a producer, I would say to myself, just hang in there a little bit longer. Just eat a little bit more shit and you'll get your dream. You'll get to your goal, Alex. And by listening to that logic, I woke up one day and a year of my life was gone. I hope my story gives someone courage to leave a bad situation no matter how deep they might be in. Now, this story is not all doom and gloom. It's hilarious, ridiculous, and truly unbelievable. Many of you will not believe parts of this story, but that's okay. It really happened. As Oscar Wilde said so beautifully, when the gods want to punish us, they answer our prayers. Over the years, many people have asked me if I would change anything if I had the opportunity not to go through this part of my life. My answer is always no. This experience made me who I am today. The main reason I decided to write this book was to create an account of one of the craziest Hollywood stories I've ever heard. I want to tell a story that would become an allegory of what not to do when chasing your dreams in Hollywood or chasing your dreams, period. So if this book helps just one person avoid pain, fear, and crushing disappointment in the pursuit of chasing their dreams, it would all be worth it, as cliche as that might sound. When you chase your dream, whether it be in the film industry, writing songs, or opening up a business, you will be tested in ways you cannot comprehend now. That's the universe testing you to see if you really want it, if you're worthy of it. How you react to those challenges will determine if you achieve your dreams or not. I made very poor decisions when that test came to me in the form of Jimmy the gangster. Those bad decisions are what make up most of this story. I truly hope my misadventures in Hollyweird do not only entertain you, but also help you along your path towards your dream. We all have turning points in our lives. For some, they happen early. For others, they happen late. Some moments are painful, exciting, dramatic, fun, or life-altering. But there are always life experiences that define who you are. And mine happened 17 years ago when I was a young and green filmmaker looking for my big break. This is what happened. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. Forward. This movie's not about me. It's about redemption. Jimmy. How far will somebody go to fulfill their dream of becoming a film director and making their first feature film? Every person you ask will have a different answer, but I doubt that many could follow the path that Alex walked. He made a pact with the devil and sold his soul in order to fulfill his dream. What you are about to read follows the curious case of Alex Ferrari, a young aspiring director who undertakes an adventure in filmmaking like no other. And let me assure you, it's all true. To many film professionals, the moral dilemma of putting personal integrity at stake in order to get a movie made always happens at various stages in their careers. For Alex, it happened right at the very beginning. In a way, this experience that brought him to the highs and lows of his own personal and professional existence was a trial by fire that either makes 
or breaks a human being. Once he went through all the turmoil and survived, nothing that came later in life matched the magnitude of sheer madness and absurdity associated with the experience of attempting to make the film, you've got to go for it. When you receive a call from a producer who's trying extremely hard to sound legitimate on the phone, but at the same time embodies all those gangster cliches from the small and big screen, you know this is not going to be a normal gig. I was fortunate to receive that call at a point in my career and personal life when being adventurous was very acceptable and even desired. After my courteous and professional request to read the screenplay before committing to the project and then getting hired on the spot, before I even had a chance to read it, I knew this project was going to be one hell of a ride. The film business attracts the widest spectrum of characters like no other industry. That's what makes it so vibrant, unpredictable, crazy, exciting, and wild. The one thing everybody has in common is that they all are pursuing a dream. Everyone on set may have different goals and dreams, but when the person at the helm of the film is following an ego-driven delusion, everyone's dream can easily turn into a nightmare. Alex managed to navigate the stormy waters of You Gotta Go For It, even when it was clear to all that the film would never get off the ground. Regardless of the insanity, the bond and friendship that came out of our adventure in movie making became something much more valuable that stayed with us for a long time. This unique story is for anybody aspiring to break in or is already working in the film business or anyone following a crazy dream. Even those who have no idea about how Hollywood really works will enjoy this wild ride. It will energize some of you to dive in at full speed into the film industry, while others may run for their lives and stick with being a lawyer, accountant, or doctor. Regardless of what each of us takes away from this remarkable and unbelievable story, we should always remember that deep down, this is a story of redemption, as Jimmy the Gangster kept reminding us during this insane adventure. Boris, the Cinematographer. Chapter 1. Speak, and the Devil Appears. You can almost smell the cancer oozing from the walls of this run-down racetrack that is decades past its prime. I walk down a long hallway, the floor, industrial green linoleum. I come up to the service elevator, which looks like a death trap, and press 5. The sounds of clanking and grinding as the doors close would make anyone nervous, but not me. I've been riding this elevator for 7 months at this point. When the doors open, you can see the vast view of an aging racetrack from behind monstrous, 50-foot-high glass walls that protect the big rollers from the elements. Seats and VIP boxes stretch as far as the eye can see. Beautiful racehorses are training on the track outside, with the Louisiana swamps as a backdrop. The carpet looks and smells like something out of a 50s Rat Pack casino. The furniture decorating my walk is frozen in time. I swear, I felt like I had just hopped out of a DeLorean with Michael J. Fox. I'm walking to my production office where I'll be having a major production meeting with the film crew of my first independent feature film. The walls are covered in blood red flower pattern wallpaper that would have been right at home in a scene from Goodfellas. This is my asbestos filled production office. Yes, I know. I didn't believe it at first either. Generally speaking, $20 million feature films with major movie stars attached don't have their production offices built out in a broken down racetrack with alligators lurking on the outskirts of the fence, but it'll all make sense very soon. My crew are all sitting around old, pushed-together cocktail tables. This is our version of a conference room. I say hello to my entire team, the director of photography, production designer, first assistant director, 
costumes, locations, PAs, and the entire gang from the second floor. This is a big day. We've been working towards production getting started on this film for over seven months. I sit at one end of the tables, and on the other end sits the producer, Jimmy. A middle-aged, overweight man who looks like he came out of central casting of a Scorsese film. He's dressed in a red silk shirt and black dress pants. The thick gold chains around his neck shine in the lights. He is unshaven and smoking a cigar. Jimmy is not only the producer, but he's also the subject of our independent film. More on that later. As I sit down, Jimmy says in his deep, cigar-smoking voice, Our fearless leader has finally arrived! It's your world, Jimmy. I'm just a squirrel looking for a nut, I replied. The gang only gives a nervous giggle until Jimmy bursts out in hysterics. Then the rest of the crew has the freedom to laugh. I begin to run the production meeting. I speak to each department, answer questions, make decisions, and the meeting is going fantastic. My confidence is filling the room. I'm doing what I was meant to do, being a feature film director. Jimmy is just sitting back and watching. He has been chasing his dream of making this film for over 15 years, and this is his first real production meeting. I give all the department heads marching orders for the day, and I stand up and say, let's have a great first day of pre-production, everyone, and make a great film for Jimmy. The crew claps before getting up and going on with their day. As I stand up, Jimmy pulls me aside and whispers in my ear, You did good today, kid. Really took control of the room. Still flying high from the meeting, I said, Thanks, Jimmy. It really felt good to finally get this film going. He moves a bit closer to my ear, and with a dangerous tone, he says, Just remember who the real captain of this ship is. He places his heavy meat hook hands on the area between my shoulder and neck and squeezes so tightly, I think my eyes are going to pop out of my head. He says, I can always crack your skull with a shovel, throw you in a ditch somewhere, and straighten you out for good. I'm the captain of this ship. Don't forget that. He lets go and yells out to the entire crew, Let's hear it for our fearless director. The room starts clapping loudly, and Jimmy slaps me on my back as he walks out. I'm left there in pain, scared, and extremely confused. Now, you must be asking yourself how a young filmmaker with no experience directing feature films got caught up with a bipolar, egomaniacal gangster trying to make a film about his life. I've been asking myself the same question every day for months now. Before we get into this crazy story, I think it's important for you to know how I got here. Chapter 2. The Film Nerd Like many filmmakers of my generation, I was raised in the glorious 80s. My earliest thought of even thinking about being a filmmaker came to me on my birthday in 1982. We were standing in a long line that wrapped around the block in New York City. My mother took me to see a film about an alien who comes to Earth and befriends a young boy. What are we watching? I asked my mom. It's called E.T., The Extraterrestrial, she tells me. I looked at the poster, which at that point was the only thing I knew about the movie, and I began to cry and act up in line. I don't want to see that. That looks so boring. My mom, in classic style, said, well, that's the only movie they're playing in this theater, so that's what we're watching. I wasn't happy, but I went in. After walking out of that theater, my young life had been changed. Steven Spielberg had changed it, as he did for so many filmmakers of my vintage. I ran home, busted open a notebook, and began to write my first screenplay, which went like this. A boy is playing outside with his toys. When he meets an alien... They become friends and play. That's pretty much it. I know. Not the most original story ever, but give me a break. I was in second grade with no formal screenwriting education. In 1982, there wasn't the same wealth of knowledge available now or even the awareness of filmmaking as a career. 
at least not in my corner of the world. From that day on, all I did was consume as many films and television shows as I could, watching on the small black and white television I had in my room. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. Video City. Filmmaking didn't really pop into my head until I was in 8th grade. As a young and entrepreneurial man, I was looking for a job, but being 15 was a major roadblock to actually getting employment. I walked by a video store that we always rented our movies from and walked in. I asked to speak to the owner and offered myself as a willing and hardworking employee. The owner took a liking to me and let me wash the windows and dust the shelves twice a week. Within a year, I was the manager of the store. Trust me, telling 20-somethings what to do when you're 15 is pretty cool. At the video store, I had access to film history. I would watch three, four movies a day. I always had a movie playing in the back of the store during working hours. Almost every night at home was a movie marathon. You have to remember that this was the first time in history that filmmakers could actually study films again and again. Before VHS and video stores, filmmakers would have to wait for films to come back and re-release in the movie theater. And even then, they couldn't stop, rewind, and analyze the scene again and again as they could with the miraculous technology of VHS. During my high school years, I had a steady diet of Hollywood blockbusters, foreign films, and classic cinema. Then one day, my grandfather gave me a Hi8 camera as a birthday gift. I had no idea what to do with it, but I knew I loved it. I started playing around with it. I made short, funny films for friends in the neighborhood. After a few films, I had standing room-only screenings at my house. Editing was a challenge, so I taught myself the craft by using two VCRs. This was purely instinctual. I had yet to even read a book about filmmaking. I was teaching myself how to combine images to tell a story. This would be an omen on how I would work my way up in the film industry years later. By the time my senior year was ending, people, including my parents, wanted to know what I was going to do with the rest of my life. As I sat in my room, surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands, of VHS tapes and Criterion Collection laser discs. By the way, Criterion was the only way I could get those precious director commentaries I love so much. So I said to myself, I seem to love movies, so I guess I'm going to be a film director. And just like that, I began my journey as a filmmaker. Little did I know what a journey it would be. Film school. So, now that I knew I wanted to be a filmmaker, I had to figure out what the next step would be. My mother said, well, let's look for a film school. I was kind of blown away, as I really didn't think I could ever go to a school where they actually taught you how to become a director. We found a technical school in Orlando called Full Sail. There I would learn many of the basics of filmmaking. How to wrap a cable properly and how to make a good cup of coffee during your first couple of jobs as a PA. I kid, I kid. I did learn a ton from film school. The one major problem was that I went to school in the mid-90s. The film industry was going through the beginning of a major technological shift from celluloid film to digital media. Much of what I learned in school was completely out of date by the time I got into the workforce. But I still knew how to wrap a cable and make a killer cup of coffee. Tuition well spent, I say. While at school, I continued to watch films and expose myself to the new generation of filmmakers that were making some noise in the film business. I remember watching Pulp Fiction for the first time in the theater and having my mind blown. It seemed that every day there was a new filmmaking success story that you could dream about. There was Kevin Smith with Clerks, Quentin Tarantino with Reservoir Dogs, Steven Soderbergh with Sex, Lies, and Videotape, John Singleton with Boys in the Hood, Richard Linkletter with Slacker, and of course, Robert Rodriguez with El Mariachi. Robert's story was always special to me. 
a Latino filmmaker makes a kick-ass action film for 7,000 bucks in Mexico and gets a huge Hollywood deal from Columbia Pictures at the age of 23. As a Latino filmmaker myself, who was only a few years younger than Robert, his path was one that I felt that I could emulate to get where I wanted to go. Trust me, I wasn't the only filmmaker who thought this way about Robert's filmmaking journey. One day I found a rogue phone in the school that allowed you to call long distance. I abused that phone. But that's another story. I had the idea to call Robert up to see if I could get a job. I rang up Columbia Pictures and asked for the office of Robert Rodriguez. The operator connected me right away. I couldn't believe it. Holy crap, she was actually connecting me. Moments later, the line started ringing. I can't tell you how nervous I was. After a few rings, the voice message comes on, and it's Robert. You've reached the offices of Robert Rodriguez. Please leave me a message, and I'll get back to you as soon as I can. Thanks. Beep. I just started rambling about how much I loved his work, that I had followed him and his story for years, and that I read his amazing book, Rebel Without a Crew, five times. I think somewhere in there I asked for an internship. I kept rambling for a while before I hung up. Needless to say, I never heard back from Robert. And to be honest, I wouldn't have called that crazy kid back either. For my generation, Robert Rodriguez's magical rise in the film business was mythical. His story was the fuel that kept me going through the tough years I had ahead of me. Chapter 3. I'm in commercials now. After college, I landed an internship at one of the largest commercial production companies in my area. My boss, Barry, was an alumni of my old school. Never underestimate the power of nepotism within the film school alumni. My only payment was gas money, which was nice since I had to drive one hour each way on a daily basis. Friends of mine didn't understand why I would show up five days a week and sometimes on weekends for no pay. I told them I was going to show up every day until somebody gave me a job, no matter how long it took. I was still living at home during this time, so I could afford to make this bold stance. Also, never underestimate the power of living at home after college. It really allows you the ability to do crazy stuff like this. Thanks, Mom. After four months, my shot at the big time finally came. Barry gave his two weeks notice. And the owner of the company, Stanley, literally said, Who are we going to get to cover this job? Well, that kid's been here for months. Let's give it to him. So my persistence paid off. And boy, did it ever. I was offered a full-time position at a salary of $23,000 a year. I was so grateful for the job and the money. My position was the head of the tape vault, which meant I edited together custom demo reels for commercial directors in the company. The time spent at the production company wasn't all peaches and cream. Stanley turned out to have a mighty bad temper. I have never seen that side of him before. He would yell and belittle his employees, crew members on his set, and anyone else who got in his way. It was my first introduction to an abusive boss. I swore to myself when I was a director, I would never treat people like that. When people act like that, it's generally out of insecurity and fear and understanding that helped me move forward on my filmmaking journey. I dealt with Stanley's abusive behavior, but mostly I just kept my head down and did my job. During my tenure at the company, I watched hundreds, if not thousands of commercials studying techniques, styles, and executions. Anytime a director would be in the office, I would pick his or her brain. It was an awesome time. Then one day, Stanley, who was apparently on his medication that day, came in and kindly asked me to check out the new room that they had just built next door. I walked in, and there she was, a brand new Avid editing system. The system was running on a speedy Mac Quadrant 950 33 megahertz with 20 gigs of storage. She was beautiful. Then and there, I decided that I needed to learn this machine if I was going to be a director. 
for the next few months with any free time I had, I would sit there and practice. I even paid to get certified by Avid as an editor. After about a year, I decided to leave my comfy job and venture out into the world of freelance editing. Crazy, I know. But that's what you do when you're 22. Luckily for me, it worked out. I became one of the most well-known and popular freelance editors in my area. We were still in the mid-90s, so money was flowing. My ego began to raise its ugly head, but more on that later. I was making mad money for a kid my age, and I was still living at home, and life was amazing. After a few years of editing, I decided it was time for me to make the jump into directing commercials. I was going to take the track that David Fincher, Michael Bay, and Spike Jones took. I would become a killer commercial director, and then Hollywood would call. I had a good buddy who happened to work at the tape vault at Propaganda Films, the world's biggest production company at the time. He would send me demo reels of all of those guys. I would watch them again and again, studying every frame. They gave me the idea to put together my own commercial demo reel. I charged up my credit cards with $30,000 to shoot five commercials on 35mm film. Back then, digital was still in its infancy, and film was still the industry standard. If I wanted to be taken seriously by the big boys, I had to have a big boy demo reel. Since my ego was writing checks, my knowledge and experience couldn't cash, the production was a bit of a shit show. I had a crew that had no business being on a professional set. My directors of photography, yes, there were two directors of photography, were corporate guys who had never really shot film. I hired them because they owned all the equipment and I could get a film camera cheap, a mistake that I would never make again. Never hire crew members just because they own equipment. Make sure they know how to use the gear first. After that horrific shoot, I sent the film off to one of the best film labs in the country who will remain nameless. I got a call at 6 a.m., which is never good, and was told that the processing machine had broken down and had lost a lot of my footage. At the time, I was devastated, but years later, I realized it was a blessing. The footage was garbage. The combination of it being my first time directing a big job and the inexperience of the cinematographers was a toxic recipe. So I called my grandfather and asked him for a $20,000 loan to reshoot the lost commercials. My grandfather was always supportive of me, and even though he had no idea what I was really doing with the money, he loaned me the money anyway. I learned my lesson hired a real cinematographer, a real production team, and we were off. The spots came out great. After I had edited together the demo reel, I said to myself, wait till they get a load of me. Who did I think I was? Jack Nicholson from Batman? Seriously, my ego was growing out of control. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now back to the show. I began sending out my demo reel to every major commercial production house in the continental U.S. and waited for the offers to come rolling in. Sending those reels out cost a ton of cash. The demo reels were recorded on industry standard three-quarter inch tape. Add in custom cases and overnight FedEx charges and the expenses really added up. Of course, my ego told me, I'll pay this credit card off on my first big commercial gig. No worries. Boy, was my ego wrong. I had no real bites on my demo reel. No one was willing to take a chance on an unknown director without a track record, especially one without representation who didn't live in Los Angeles. Considering that I refused to accept any editing work that was offered to me because I was a director now and needed to be available for potential gigs, the bills really started to pile up. Yes, I was an idiot. I swear my ego was killing me. After almost a year of this, I was in major debt. 
I hadn't really worked a whole lot, and my dream of being a big-time commercial director was gone. I was in a bad place. The film business had given me my first big defeat in the battle to achieve my dream, and trust me, it wouldn't be the last. Enter the con man. When I tell you I sent my demo reel out everywhere, I mean it. There must have been 500 copies of it floating in the ether. One of those reels fell into the hands of a local commercial producer, and I will use the term producer extremely lightly. His name was Francisco. He rang me up and told me that he had watched my demo reel and had some pro bono jobs for me to direct some charity commercials. At that point, pay or no pay, I would have taken any chance to direct something. Surprisingly enough, the production went extremely well. There was a budget, a real crew, and we even shot on 35mm film. I now had fresh commercials for my demo reel, and this gave me a boost to my morale. Francisco and I would shoot a few more projects together. I started getting calls to direct commercials. Not big-time stuff, but it was work. I even got a few jobs from my old production company I had gotten my start with. Things were looking up, and life seemed to be going well. I wasn't where I wanted to be yet, but I was on my way. Then one day, I got a call from Francisco. How would you like to direct a $20 million feature film about the mob? I was excited, but extremely skeptical of the offer. Even with my ego a bit out of control, I knew the chances that I would get an opportunity to shoot a film with a budget of $20 million were slim. But that little voice in my head was saying, this is it. This is your El Mariachi. This is what you've been waiting for. Francisco had the tendency to exaggerate, being an ex-used car salesman. Bad habits are hard to break, but I humored him. There's this ex-mobster who's looking for a director to make a film about his life in the mob. He's a real dude, spent time in prison and everything. He wants to use a local director because he doesn't trust any of those Hollywood thieves, as he puts it. Francisco said he would set up a meeting at the production house where we were doing color grading on our latest commercial. I agreed to meet him, but I really didn't think it would go anywhere. I had had so many meetings like this in the past. So much BS. So many producers who talked the talk but never walked the walk. Even the few years I had been in the game, I had learned that much. Or so I thought. Chapter 4. Meeting the Devil it was the next day, and I was supervising a color grading session in the big post house downtown. Francisco burst through the doors. He's here, he's here. Who's here, I asked. That producer I was telling you about, he said. He's hanging out front by the client bar. I just showed him your demo reel in the screening room, and he wants to talk. I reluctantly got up and followed him out. There, in the distance, sat a middle-aged, overweight gangster who looked like he'd just walked out of a Las Vegas casino in the 60s. He was dressed in a gold silk shirt and black dress pants. A thick gold chain glimmered in the lights. He was unshaven and smoking a cigar. I said to myself, this can't be real. But oh, it was. Francisco almost skipped over to him. He was so excited. Alex, may I introduce you to Jimmy? He's the producer I've been telling you about. Jimmy stood up and put his hand out. Pleasure to meet you, Alex. I hear good things. Nice to meet you as well, Jimmy, I said shaking his hand and thinking it was like grabbing a tree trunk. We sat down at the bar. Francisco excused himself. I'll leave you two movie moguls to it. And with that, he vanished into the color grading suite, leaving the two of us alone. So I hear you're making a movie, I said, starting the conversation. Yeah, I am, said Jimmy. I want to make a movie about my life. There have been too many lies over the years about who I am and what I did. I want to make a film that sets the record straight. I did my time, and now I want to make something that I could show my mother so she knows her little boy done good. I left the life behind. It's really a story of redemption. 
I sat down and listened. I have a movie star attached already, and I have a few letters of intent from some others. The budget for my film is $20 million. The script is good, but needs a little work. Could you help me with that? Can you screenwrite? Yes, I can definitely help you with the rewrite, I said, thinking in my head, how can I turn this into the next Goodfellas? Jimmy continued. I already had a Hollywood line producer break down the script and schedule it. I also saw your demo reel, and I have to say I'm impressed. I don't impress easy, kid. Thank you, Jimmy, I replied. Is the budget in place? The money should be dropping any day, he answered. Still not quite believing it, I asked. Don't misunderstand. I'm not looking a gift horse in the mouth. But why are you looking for local directors to bring your film to life? Why not use someone from Los Angeles? Jimmy paused for a moment. Because I've been studying Hollywood for 15 years. I spent hundreds, if not thousands, of my own dollars to get this movie off the ground. You have no idea how much I've suffered for this movie. I don't trust any of those fucking agents, managers, lawyers, studio assholes, none of them. I want a pure vision for my movie, not a vision that's been tainted by that fucking place. You can tell he was getting heated when he started talking about Hollywood. $20 million for a movie like mine is nothing. I can get that kind of money tomorrow if I wanted to. But Hollywood wants stars, A-list directors, and writers. Fucking guys. They have no idea. Let me ask you something, kid. What kind of a director are you? I paused a moment to really absorb the question. I'm a storyteller, Jimmy. I tell stories. Stories is the most important thing. Not the stars, not the camera, not the sets. It's all about the story. Good answer, he said. I'm meeting with some other directors later today. If you get the gig, I'll call you in the next few days. I thanked him and went back to my color grading session. I didn't really think much of it. I'd had a ton of meetings like that over the years, though never with someone as colorful as Jimmy. Those meetings never panned out, so I didn't think this would be any different, especially from a guy like Jimmy. Boy, was I wrong. Meet me at my office. I'm sitting in my apartment, editing some footage on my home editing system when my phone rings. Hey, kid, can you come and meet me at my office? Who's this? It's Jimmy, he laughs. Don't bust my balls, kid. Can you come? I was willing to see how this played out. Yeah, sure. Where is it? Susie's Diner on 5th and Castro. I'll be there in the back booth. 12 p.m. See you soon. He hangs up the phone. A diner? My curiosity got the best of me, so I headed over. I walked into this diner, which was obviously built in the 70s. The smelt of burnt oil with a dash of maple syrup filled the air. Jimmy was sitting in the back next to a gentleman I didn't know. Thanks for coming, kid. This is my office manager, Richard. I shook his hand and had a seat in the sticky booth. There were papers all over the table. You could tell that he'd been there for a while. Doris, the waitress, walks up. Does your friend want something to drink, Jimmy? A glass of water would be great. Jimmy almost looked insulted. Order whatever you want, kid. Doris will take good care of you. You know what? Bring him a BLT and make it two. Richard, you want one? Before Richard could answer, Jimmy said, Yeah, just make it three BLTs, Doris. Thanks, sweetie. Glad you called, Jimmy. Sorry we had to meet here, he said. I'm in between offices at the moment. So look, I've decided to give you the gig. Do you want to direct my movie or what? I was a bit stunned. Could this really be happening? Yeah, yes, yes, I would be honored to tell your story. That's why I picked you. Because you told me you were a storyteller. And that's what this movie needs. A real storyteller. The name of the movie is You Gotta Go For It. Jimmy pulled out a copy of the script and smacked it on the table. 
Here you go. This script cost me hundreds of thousands of dollars. Read it. Let me know what you think and what you can do to make it better. I picked it up and started flipping through the pages. Jimmy had mentioned that he had two major stars attached to the film, Oscar-winning actor William Hurt and a young and sober Robert Downey Jr. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. And now, back to the show. Jimmy loved the film Heart and Soul, which Downey starred in, and Jimmy said that he was the only one that could play him. Robert was coming off the worst time in his career, and Jimmy said, I wanted to give the kid a shot at redemption, like me. Once you read it, you'll understand where I've been, what I've done, and the price I've paid. It's really a story of redemption. It has a Count of Monte Cristo feeling to it. That sounds amazing, Jimmy. I can't wait to read it, I said, putting the script aside to concentrate on what he was saying. Now, kid, I've already talked to the bonding company about you. And in order for them to bond you as a director on this film, they need to see how you direct the scene or two. I fought them on this. I told them I had all the confidence in the world that you could do the job. But what can I do? So we need to shoot a sizzle reel. Kind of like a trailer with a few scenes from the script to show them that you have the goods. I can offer $2,000 for the budget of the reel. Can you match that? I didn't hesitate. Sure, I can do that. Think that I had no savings and was barely getting myself out of debt. But I still had credit cards. This was my shot. I had to take it, right? Perfect. I knew I picked the right guy for the job. I have access to this great racetrack on the other side of the hill. It looks great. Perfect for shooting a few scenes. The owner owes me a favor, so we'll have full run of the place. Do you have a line producer that can help us put this thing together? Sure, Francisco can help. Francisco, do you think he's up to it? Yeah, he's produced a bunch of commercials with me. If you vouch for him, I'm good with it. For some reason, when he said that, I got a bit nervous. Jimmy pulled out a box from underneath the counter. I had these made up for you, kid, he said, handing me a stack of business cards with my name on it and the name of the film printed on them. You gotta go for it, director Alex Ferrari. Now it's official. You're part of the family, kid. Go home, read the script, and let me know what you think. Thank you, Jimmy. Thank you for this opportunity. I won't let you down. We stood up, and Jimmy shook my hand, but the grip was tighter this time. He looked me in the eye. I know you won't, kid. Doris came over with the BLTs. Make one of those to go, Doris. My friend here has got some work to do. Just as I was getting up from the booth, another gentleman, looking like a poor man's Joe Pesci, walked into the diner and headed over to Jimmy's table. I see you later, kid. My 12.30 is here. Dazed and confused, I walked out of the diner to my car. I just get hired to direct a $20 million film about a mobster? Am I going to direct the next Goodfellas? Is this the moment I've been waiting for all of my life? All I knew was I had a script to read and a shoot to prep for. I ran home, sat down, and started to read the script. Jimmy's story was fascinating, but to be honest, the script needed a ton of work. I felt that I could make something really special out of it. Had I ever written a screenplay before? No, not really. Just some stuff in college, but my ego assured me I could handle a complete rewrite of this screenplay. When you want to believe something so badly, it makes it easy for people to take advantage of you. I didn't know where this was heading, but the one thing I knew was I had just strapped myself into a roller coaster and I had no idea what was going to happen next. To be honest, that's what made it exciting and terrifying all at the same time. 
I truly hope you enjoyed this episode and this free preview of my book, Shooting for the Mob. If you want to get a copy of it for free and you don't have an Audible account, just go to freefilmbook.com and you can sign up to get a free copy of it. If not, head over to shootingforthemob.com and you can buy it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, uh, and you can buy the audiobook or ebook there. That's shootingforthemob.com. Thank you so much for listening, guys. And I hope this has given you a little insight to why I do what I do and try to help so many people with the work that I am doing. Thank you so much. And if you've only been listening to this over podcast and you want to watch these amazing conversations, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at nextlevelsoul.com forward slash YouTube. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, trust the journey. It is here to teach you. I'll talk to you soon.